Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody. Payments professor here, and welcome to the Payments Podium. We have got a regular, I'm going to have to say. It's our international contact. It's Andrew Gomez. He is uh, somebody that I got to tell you, he's my go-to when it comes to what's happening in the world of faster payments, sometimes just what's happening in the world of payments. Haven't been able to talk to Andrew because of, well, COVID, but we finally got a chance to catch up. And in scheduling this call and being able to talk, he he baited me. I, I got to tell you, he baited me because he's like, hey, I've been working on the study of 12 different countries. And I'm sitting there going, wait, 12 different countries? I've got to hear about this. So, Andrew, uh, welcome to the Payments Podium. I got to know what in the world do you mean you're studying 12 different countries and their payment systems? Yeah. Hi, Kevin. Um, so essentially, we're, we're looking at what's going on in real-time development uh, in, in 12 different markets spread across uh, four different regions. And the idea is to um, see what's happening at an infrastructure level. So what players are doing what, how have systems evolved over the next couple of years, uh, what are regulators pushing through, what is the market pushing through, um, and then looking at how end users, both businesses and consumers, are using uh, these, these new products and services, and looking at how um, these new uh, develop, developments on the infrastructure level are enabling um, uh, new products and services to be, be developed by fintechs, both uh, in cooperation with, say, traditional players, but also uh, with one another, and um, in order to fill you know, uh, niches in the, in the market where um, you know, the traditional players maybe haven't done as well, a good a job of doing, or possibly um, filling other, other, let's say, underserved uh, areas, such as, say, financial inclusion, or um, uh, what's another good example? Um, digital onboarding, uh, um, KYC, you know, things like that. Oh, wow. Have you hit a bunch of the big buzzwords right there or just in, in explaining all this? So, well, first of all, okay, let's break it down just a little bit. Can you give me an idea of the 12 different systems? Like, are they Europe? Are they Africa? Are they Asia? What, what are the ones that you really are looking at and doing this comparison for? And I also want to also give a quick plug out there. Andrew is with Lipis Advisors. If you're looking for someone to be able to guide you through as a country or as a business working worldwide doing more global payments there's no doubt uh, i'm going to have to go ahead and give my recommendation lipis advisors is the first group that i would go to without a doubt but uh andrew can you tell us a little bit more about what countries you're working with yeah so um as i mentioned we're, we're looking at 12 different markets um in the americas we're looking at chile and colombia uh in africa we're doing nigeria and ethiopia in the Middle East, we're doing Saudi Arabia. Uh, in the Asia Pacific, we're doing uh, Indonesia, India, Thailand, uh, and Japan. And then in Europe, um, I guess it actually now will come out to more than 12 countries based on the number of countries we're doing. But in terms of reports, uh, we had one kind of Europe-wide, we call it the SEPA report, where we focused on um, Italy, France, and Spain. But then we also had separate reports um, covering the German market as well as the Swedish market. And we're basically looking at all the different payment systems in those markets. So the, the RTGS system, which is traditionally run by the central bank, um, 
high value systems that are also there. Um, so an example of that would be say, um, uh, Euro one in Europe um, versus, you know, uh, um, the target two. Um, we're also looking at the bulk systems. So the bulk ACH systems, as well as uh, any real time systems that are either already um, present or currently underdeveloped, under development. And uh, we're also looking at ATM infrastructures when the ATMs are actually used to initiate, um, say, payments uh, independently of, say, just going to your ATM and then submitting a payment message to your bank that way. In some, in some countries, actually, the, the ATM network itself is its own separate payment system. So this one report is going to be your life's work, it sounds like, because to look at all of that <laughs> for 12 countries, that's really, I mean, that's digesting a, a lot of information. There's no doubt about it. Now, um, if you don't mind, can we actually do a little focus on the faster payments? Because it looks like in those countries you named, all of them either have or are in development of a faster payment system. Is that correct? Um. I believe so, yeah. The only kind of exception might be maybe uh, Ethiopia. Um, oh, yeah. They do have a, a system there. It runs over the ATM network. Um, I wouldn't really compare it to, say, RTP in the US or uh, the various SCT INS compliant um, networks within Europe. Um, but I mean, it does post in, in real time. Um, I'm, I don't remember if it's 24, seven, 365. Um, but it's not used in the same way that you might think of traditionally when you think of faster payments, uh, in, in, in a European or North American context, but it, I guess it makes, it, it meets some basic criteria. Yeah. But so you, you are saying though, that even Ethiopia has a fast solution. It may not qualify for our 24, seven, 365 but they do have a type of solution. And I think you said through ATMs that allows them to be able to transfer funds. Are those P2P, I'm assuming, type payments or, or do they actually involve businesses? So I'm, I'm, I haven't finished the infrastructure section yet. So, so bear with me. I might, I might have some details incorrect. Uh, it's actually one of the last countries we're working on. I'm supposed to get that report later today. Um, but if I remember correctly, it's not being used by businesses yet. It's only being used um, when it is used for, for P2P payments. Um, but actually the, the Ethiopian government has a, um, they call it the 2222 initiative. And I think the idea was to um, something like 2000, and this is wrong, I'm gonna mess this one up for sure. I think it's 2000, um, no, 20,000 jobs in two years, uh, what were the other ones? Yeah, it was a bunch of, basically they're trying to um, support fintechs um, in the country by opening things up a little bit and, and promoting uh, non-cashless payment options because at the moment, the overwhelming majority of payments in Ethiopia are, are done with cash. And as, uh, as my analyst was telling me the other day, when we were reviewing some of the earlier sections, um, one of the big problems in Ethiopia is you kind of have, you have the capital, Addis Ababa, and then everywhere else. All the fintechs tend to be clustered in the, in the capital city. And once you leave that area, um, it's, it's a very different uh, market. So you have, it's, it's, I wouldn't even say it's a rural versus urban divide. It's a, it's a Addis Ababa versus the rest of the country divide. 
Wow. Well, you know, actually, that's another thing. And look at all these countries and you talk about the divides. One of the things that I'm getting a lot of questions for, and folks, for you listening in, again, we're looking at countries around the world. That's one of the things that Andrew is, that's his forte. I mean, his expertise is looking at around the world. He's actually in Berlin, Germany, as we're speaking right now. I'm, come, I'm here in Tampa. And I know here in the States, Andrew, one of the things we're seeing is we're moving forward with faster payments. And we've definitely seen because of COVID, I know the world has seen that we need more faster, contactless, cashless options available. And the questions though that are coming up is, well, what about the friction points and how do you get around the friction points? Can you talk to any of the friction points that happen in any of those countries or are happening in any of those countries or happen like India? India has been around for a while, even so as Japan and Thailand when it comes to faster payment options. But what were the friction points that they had in getting and moving forward with a faster solution? Yeah, so actually what's really interesting if we look at the Japanese market, so they've had a real-time um, interbank payment system since, I want to say, 1973. The issue is that the banks have traditionally seen interbank payments as, as a revenue source. And therefore, the, the cost to make an interbank payment is actually very high in Japan. I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's definitely the equivalent of more than a U.S. dollar per transaction. And so what end up, ends up happening is people don't actually use the interbank space all that much. And, you know, in many ways, uh, the Japanese society is, 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 is far advanced, um, um, say, anywhere in Europe or maybe in North America. Somewhere. When it comes to cashless payments, that's not necessarily the case. And what we've seen in the last couple of years is an explosion in the number of, of um, e-money solutions or e-wallets. Um, some of which are kind of white label products that are, are uh, branded by each of the, uh, the adopting banks. And then individuals use these, these closed loop systems to transfer money to one another. Um, or they, they'll, they'll load money on their, their, um, their e-wallet and then they'll make payments say, in, in commuter trains for them. So, for example, they'll go to the, a commuter train in the morning, buy a cup of coffee, buy some snack, for, maybe a newspaper for the road pay for their train ticket, all using these e-wallets. And but the same app, use all these the same app to pay for those different things from different vendors, right? No, that's the other thing, is they're actually oh. different. So even, even some of the different commuter lines will have different, different non-interoperable wallets. So, and the, the problem is that you have a ton of different apps. I think, I think it was something like 30 different e-wallet apps some of which spoke to each other, some of them had an interoperability, others did not. And so there's just this big divide uh, in terms of the number of players. And so we definitely expect the market there to, to consolidate over the next few years. But it's, it's, it's already gotten to a point where interoperability is a major issue. And actually, you see a very, a very similar effect in Europe. And in fact, um, just yesterday, or maybe it was the day before, uh, there was a, a new initiative was officially launched, which had been rumored for the last year or so, called uh, the European Payments Initiative. Um, for any keen watchers of the European space, it, it was formerly known as um, PEPSI, the uh, Pan Europe Payment Pan European Payment System Initiative. And the idea is and now wait wait because in case people are looking, they want to look that up. That's just now the European Payment Initiative. 
just simple? Yeah, it's now just referred to as the EPI, and it, EPI. it was uh, it was just announced officially. Uh, I want to say July first. It might have been it might have been yesterday. Um, and the idea is, in in well, I, I think it's pretty obvious for anyone kind of following it. But it's basically the Europeans trying to uh, lessen their reliance on on payment system providers that come from outside Europe, i.e., Visa, Mastercard, uh, and the various Chinese um, uh, providers. And the the idea is, I think, when you've seen um, when you've when you followed the news over the last say year or two about about um, say the the threatened sanctions on German companies that worked with um, a Gazprom in in Russia for the Nord Stream two oil pipeline, um, you know basically uh, Donald Trump I believe it was threatened uh, that any German company you know doing business with Nord Stream would uh, be banned from SWIFT that they would they would take. Uh, the U.S. U.S. dollar clearing um, out of out of the option there, and obviously for you know for an, an economy like Germany where it lives off of exports, that kind of threat is a big deal. And shortly thereafter, the German foreign minister said, "Well, maybe uh, Europe needs to think about uh, 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 some other payment system that's not not um, or say I should say independent of the U.S. dollar." And so the EPI I think can be seen in that context. To basically make sure that Europe is not reliant on on foreign payment payment networks to to operate. So that's and well and I guess to, to circle back around and why I thought about this when I was talking about Japan, if you look at all the different European countries, a lot of them have their own even within the eurozone. A lot of them have their own standalone P two P apps, right? So you have Bsum in Spain. Um, you have uh, Crit in, in Germany. Uh, you have various, I think you have three, three apps in, in Italy. Um, you have two or three in France. Uh, Paylib is one of them. Um, and then in, uh, in the Netherlands, you also have uh, another app called Ideal. I guess not really an app, but they have an app as well. And so what happens is these apps don't talk to each other. And while that doesn't maybe seem like a big deal, like, you know, why do Europeans need an interoperable app? I mean, how often do you go to other European countries? Um, I think it's, it's interesting to think that, you know, if you think of European countries more like American states, especially for those people living on the borders or those living in really small countries like, say, Luxembourg or Belgium, it's definitely feasible that you actually live in one country and work in the other. Um, and then, you know, for people like me who travel relatively frequently, with, even within Europe, it's also nice not to have to worry about, um, you know, will, will my, my payment app work once I leave Germany? And so there's, there's a big push to, to uh, create interoperability and, like I said, to, for Europe to not be dependent on, on foreign providers. You, you know, I see that same problem here in the States. There's no doubt about it, where we do have all these different apps and they don't talk to each other. So I, I would ask, is the European Payments Initiative, and, and I've heard about this, and I've heard about it as being more like, they're gonna fight Visa and MasterCard. You know, of course, that's the press taking mm -hmm. their spin on it. But is it gonna solve for that so that you'll be able to see, hey, here's a central location where you can have your different apps, but there's the interoperability, you know, that's a key word you said, but the communication and the exchange to actually be able to take place between them. So is that something we we're seeing happen in Europe? Is it, 
ever going to be a possibility here in the States? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit skeptical because while, while if you look at the list of the, of the, the banks that were, were backing the EPI, I mean, it's, it's impressive. It's, it's the, a lot of big, important mm-hmm. European banks. But the problem is always whether all of the other banks um, who don't necessarily see this as a big issue, whether they're also willing to, to get on board. And they're actually, in, in typical European fashion, there are multiple interoperability, let's say, efforts going on underway. There's also uh, the EMPSA, the European Mobile Payment System Association, who's also trying to create interoperability between these national uh, payment apps. So you have um, Swish in Sweden, you have Vips in Norway, uh, Bisum in Spain, um, you have another one in Switzerland, I can't, oh, tw- Twint in, in Switzerland. Um, and so they're, all, they're, they're also working on, 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 on this platform. And so, you know, with, with Europe, there's always an issue of, of collaboration and whether you're able to, to get, uh, let's say, a critical mass of, of account coverage before anything can move through. And I would, I mean, my initial guess, and I have to say the, the original uh, um, press release that was, was given out either yesterday or the day before uh, was light on the details. You know, they only mm-hmm. really talked about their vision. And so it's, you know, I would say let's, let's wait three to five years and let's see how far, far, how far they get. They, they mentioned they wanted to have something in place by 2022. But you know, given COVID-19, it's kind of the same old story, right? Is this really a priority at the moment? Are banks really gonna, gonna fork out money for this, for this initiative at a time when there are a lot of other things going on and they're not trivial things? So that's, that's always the question. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens, but uh-huh. I'm, I wouldn't exactly jump on board immediately. Yeah, it is a lot of wait and see. And I think though part of the problem is, you know, is that jump on board immediately. And I mean, not you, but when we see the different players in the different networks in in whatever country you're in, if you don't have enough people jump on board, then, you know, those early adopters, you don't have the followers that come along with it. And I know the other thing that you mentioned too, is you said there's a lot of the big players that are there. Well, I feel like we're so fragmented here in the States because we have like, you know, the top 50, then we have the uh, 50 to 250 size banks, and then we have the 11,000 others. And it's just, it's, there's such disparity really because in the size and how it works. So if you get the top 50 to do something, they've already taken over half of the accounts in control of what's happened in the U.S., but even they don't tend to operate too well together. And to me, that's just one of the biggest friction points. And I've always wondered, how can that be solved? I've even looked and wondered, you know, and I mean, I'd like to hear your speculation on it. A lot of people are wondering, will the Fed Now initiative, when it gets here, you know, I'm wondering if 2023 is still viable. I, I don't believe so, personal opinion. But if Fed, will Fed Now be able to resolve for that? And my answer is no. I don't think it will. I, I, I just, I really think the friction is going to almost always be there. Yeah, it, it's it, it's interesting you mentioned that. So actually, we we wrote a response um, uh, as as Lipis advisors, uh, which I which I helped write um, when when the Fed released the uh, request for comments on on the Fed Now project, and we looked at it from a from from a lessons learned perspective, right? So what what could the U.S. learn 
from the exact same thing that happened in Europe when, when uh, the European Payments Council, the scheme uh, developer, when they released uh, the plans for, for SEPA credit transfer instant um, several years ago. And then um, all the national uh, ACHs in, in the member states started developing their own solution that would follow these scheme rules. And then, um, I don't remember exactly how much long later, but several years later, several years into it, the European Central Bank came out and said, oh, you know what, we're actually going to do our own um, uh, instant payments uh, settlement system as well. And the problem is they announced that before the national systems had gone live. And so then you had this situation where smaller banks were thinking, well, wait, should we wait to see what the ECB does or should we go with the national provider? And what, what ended up happening is a lot of banks decided to put things on hold, did not join immediately once uh, the national systems went live, and you had a friction in the market. And actually, you still have this problem today that me living in Germany, um, it can be a bit complicated to make a, a real-time payment, even though I'm in the same currency zone as someone in France. And part of that is because some German banks haven't connected to the, the correct systems yet. Other banks have. And this is a, 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 you know, a, a serious problem given that the system has been live for two, over two and a half years now. And so we took this and we wanted to tell the Fed, like, look, you already have a private player in the market doing this. They've already said that they're, they're, they're going to do so on a cost recovery basis. So this isn't going to be a way for the big owner banks of the clearinghouse to to you know, push around the smaller community banks. So what is the real thing that you're gonna do? You're just going to lead to market fragmentation, which is gonna slow adoption. And, and unless the interoperability issue is solved, you're gonna create even more problems. And you know, you're better positioned than I am to tell me what, what you've seen going on in the US over the last say year or so since, since FedNow was announced. Um, but I would, I would venture to say that um, you're seeing a similar effect that Banks that were, would have made a decision by now might be waiting. And I'm guessing that real time hasn't really uh, hit its stride in the U.S. compared to what could have happened if the Fed would have relied on, on the clearinghouse. Hey, you know, it, it's crazy. And, and, and usually I'm the one to ask the question. So great job and throwing that back at me there. But it, it's, <laughs> it's really crazy because what I have seen is with the announcement of Fed now, it was kind of like, here are your definite options, make a decision. And that's what started happening. I'm talking before COVID even. Before COVID, because of the announcement of Fed now coming, you know, last year, people actually started, we saw more signups happening with the clearinghouse, or at least what I could see from the press release and everything that's going on there. What I could see from mm -hmm. my, my role even at VSOFT, I, I saw that, hey, there was a lot more interest we started having more meetings people you know going what can we do to get on your programs but then there were a small group that just said we're gonna wait we're gonna we're gonna mm. we're gonna just wait and see what happens you know those i call them the laggards like you you see in normal things now i would wonder here's the thing with with those that in that similar situation because i do a lot of looking at what's happening in europe you know i take a lot of our, our conversations and relay it to what's happening in the u.s because we are a about a decade behind in what's happening, at least in the European community versus what we're doing over here in the US and especially with fraud. I even have a talk next week that I'm gonna be doing where people are like, what can we do about faster payments fraud? And I go, well, let's look and see what's happened in Europe. I'm, I'm incorporating a lot of Australia in that now too and going, here's mm -hmm. lessons learned. 
let's apply those lessons learned. So I would ask in lessons learned in this situation of, you know, here was CEPA and then here comes a government uh, government backed agency to do the same job for those who waited. Like you said, there were some still trying to get connected. Did it, was it harmful to them? I'm trying to look for the right word. Did it set them back? The ones that waited, did it actually set them back? Did it have, you know, negative effects on their account holders in their abilities to be able to operate in business or even as consumers? So I, I would say if you look at the German market, um, you really have a big divide between those, those of customers of banks that, that have connected to the system and have connected, you know, really early. Uh, Deutsche Bank would be one of them, right? They, um, they're a big supporter of real time and um, they're one of the, the big banks that, that supports EBA Clearing's uh, RT1 solution which is one of the pan-European, one of more or less two pan-European uh, real-time systems. Uh, and then you have uh, the customers of banks that don't necessarily offer uh, real-time, or if, even if they do, they price it very high. So for example, if you look at the German savings banks, which hold approximately 50% of, I believe, consumer accounts in Germany, uh, the pricing there ranges anywhere from in some cases, it's free if you're if you're one of the if you have a premium account with the savings banks, but mostly it's priced somewhere between 25 euro cents up to even um, I think I think the highest was a euro per instant instant payment, and so what's happening is it's just not being used. Now, part of that is because so many accounts aren't necessarily reachable, and the other another big reason is up until July 1st. Uh, the transaction value limit in Europe was quite small. It was something like, it was 15,000 euros. Uh, though that went up July 1st up to 100,000. So now I expect there to be a lot more business, business use. Um, but there's some uh, really key value-added services that are, that are missing. Um, one of the big ones that I'm, I'm actually really excited to see is request to pay. Um, that's being worked on by uh, EBA Clearing as well. Uh, and the European Payments Council is putting up, uh, working on a, a, a scheme book to, um, for for that needs to be followed for request to pay uh, within Europe, and that's I think scheduled to come out in November. Um, and that will be a, for CEPA instant. Is the request to pay being added yeah. to CEPA instant? Because doesn't request for pay exist in some of the European individual faster payment schemes already? Um, it. It doesn't exist as a, as a, let me think of how to explain it, not from a, a scheme perspective, from an app perspective. So for example, within your apps, you're able to request payment, uh, but then that just initiates a, a credit transfer. It's not quite the same as a request to pay at the scheme level. Okay. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, so, so the individual country solutions do have, um, via their, their, their national champion apps, they have this request to pay function. Um, but it's, it's not a, at a pan-European level. So, for example, if, if you're in Spain um, and you have a Dutch friend, both of you have real-time payments, your app can't talk to the other app and you can't send a request to pay to that app. But with the EPC uh, rulebook, that will, that will change. So that you can be on different apps, different network type deal, and it would still come through to be able to allow you to answer and reply to that request uh, for pay. I'm not sure if it'll be if it'll work on the app, but it would. I, I believe it would work on online banking. Okay, 
Um, you know, we're, we're, we're getting down here. It's amazing how much time flies by when I'm talking to you. Uh, I, I, I want to be able to close out, though, with a, a really important question. I know it's on a lot of people's minds. And it's when we do see this fragmentation like this, and we do have these big question marks in what's going to happen next. I know from the business perspective, whether it's small, medium, or large, but especially small and medium here in the States, people are going, all right, because of COVID, because of the uncertain future, I know without a doubt, I've got to have a faster contactless cashless system. That's, you know, number one thing I'm hearing over and over again from the business side. So the <laughs> banks and credit unions, in my opinion, they're going to have to answer for that. But let's, let's look at it from the business perspective. If you were to, you know, be talking to a small business owner and based off and one here in the States and based off of what you've seen in Europe and around the globe, and you, they say, okay, what should I be looking for when it comes to a contactless, cashless, faster option? What would you tell them? I mean, what would be your advice to them? These, these are the things to look for. This is what you should consider, you know, and in, in knowing that not everything's going to talk to each other too. What would you tell them? Yeah, I, 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 think, um, I think COVID is really going to uh, force some consumers to change the way they make payments. So we can, we can all think of, I'm sure everyone in the U.S. can relate to standing behind that one person at the grocery store who waits till uh, all of their uh, groceries have been scanned and then the person whips out their checkbook and starts writing a check. Uh, I think we, could, we all know that, 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 that one person who does that. Um, I think COVID-19 is going to force some people to look for new payment options. And for me, the big question is, is how much will these, these, uh, these changes in consumer payment habits, how long will they last? I, I personally think that a lot of people that have maybe weren't trying uh, contactless cards, for example, that weren't doing this before, maybe they've, they've felt an incentive to do it now and they realize, oh, wow, this is actually really convenient. You know, I don't have to put in my PIN. It's, you know, it's really fast. Um, maybe they've informed themselves a bit like, you know, how do I know that, you know, uh, the person's uh, in front of me at line, that when they ask to pay contactless, that, that my card somehow won't get charged. You know, they might, they might do a little bit of research into this just to feel more secure. And then when they've done it a few times, they might realize, actually, you know what, this is really safe. This is secure. It's, mm -hmm. it's efficient. You know, maybe, and maybe they'll make that change. Um, so I would, I would expect this to accelerate, especially, I mean, definitely in the short term, it's going to accelerate changes in payment habits, but I expect that to a large degree, these payment habits will actually remain even post-crisis. Um, I mean, I can say I've definitely seen that in Germany, whereas before, um, you know, so Germany is, has this reputation that uh, it's, it's really advanced and modern. And when it comes to online banking, I would say that's generally true. Um, you know, we, we haven't gotten checks in Germany in over a decade. Um, and we, everyone receives their, their salaries or makes, uh, you know, their bill payments via direct debits. But when Germans pay for goods at the point of sale, the physical point of sale, it's almost always cash. And when you go to supermarkets now, people are not paying cash. They're, in fact, using a card and even contactless. So they've, they made a really big jump in what I would say is a pretty short, uh, uh, time frame, and I actually think that most Germans won't go back to using cash um, for things like groceries or you know um, going to the convenience store and buying a gallon of milk or well I guess the Germans would buy a liter of milk uh, and you know I don't know a soda or something. 
Um, maybe that will change. I, I, I have hope. Um, so what I would tell business owners is look at, look at how things have changed over the last few months and don't just assume that this is temporary. I would actually say, take the change, you know, multiply it by half, right? divide by half and assume that that's going to be the new normal right after things go, go back to normal. I mean, I'm not sure we're actually ever going to go back to completely normal, but uh, I would expect changes, changes to remain to a certain extent. You know, I, I like that. Let, let's go ahead and let's take half it, half it, and know, know that half of them are going to stick with these different options. Uh, you know, again, I, I agree with you too. Uh, at least if the experience was positive. If you went through and the using of the app was a positive experience, then I expect you're going to stick with it. I had one with a local Greek restaurant here that I just can't stand their app to the point I had to send something to their developers. But I love the food. And I want to be able to still get the food. But I mean, their app even giving me huge incentives was such a chore to use. I found it easier to call them up. Mm -hmm. And that was just an experience that here I am a payments expert who wants to use the cashless contactless app option. And I couldn't. And so I can only imagine for that one instance what it's going to be like. But then I've seen others like, you know, um, my mother, she's older. She got on and she's able to order some food and even tell me, hey, the order's ready. Go get it now. And I'm like, mom, I'm not ready to go yet. She's like, well, the food is. So you, you had all of those different experiences. Um, Andrew, I just want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and to be able to catch up. Uh, we're, we're running out of time here, so I'm going to go ahead and close everything up. People, if you're out there listening and you want to learn even more about international payments, Andrew Gomez, he's with Lippus Advisors. They are studying what's happening around the globe. They do a lot of research around the globe. They've been doing this for a couple of decades now. They are, in my opinion, without a doubt, the I want to say only go-to source if you want to be able to have some research on what's happening around payments around the world. Uh, Andrew, again, thank you for being here. I'm Kevin Olson, the Payments Professor, and class is dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.